Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as my guest uh, a scholar whose work I've been following for a while, and I'll describe uh, how that fits into to my background. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Kurt Gray, and uh, he is a social psychologist and an award-winning researcher and teacher, a teacher who uses an interdisciplinary method to study our deepest held beliefs and how to bridge moral divides. And I can't think of anything more needed in America today, whether in religion or in politics. Dr. Gray is an associate professor in psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he directs the deepest held beliefs, or excuse me, the deepest beliefs lab. And I was geeking out when I found that in preparation for our discussion today, lots of resources there, and the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding. And I will include links to all of this in the program notes for folks who can follow along. He's also an adjunct associate professor in organizational behavior at the, yeah, hopefully I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Keenan Flagler? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Business School at UNC, where he teaches about organizational ethics and team processes. Dr. Gray received his PhD from Harvard University. Dr. Gray, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. I, I just want to kind of share with you and for those uh, who regularly watch this podcast will be familiar with this, but many won't, as to how your work in a har- uh, harm-based morality and social psychology came on my radar. Um, for a number of years, I've been interested in the dynamics of multi-faith conflict and why it is that conservative Christians tend to either keep other religions at bay, just ignore them, or more often than not, engage in these confrontational kinds of interactions and approaches. And for conservative Christians, everything boils down to theology, but I I think that's misguided. I wanted to understand the psychological processes that was going on within the conservative Christian mind um, that was then resulting in these kind of negative theological approaches. And so I got two grants from the Louisville Institute, uh, and the second grant Took, a, took our theology and put it into conversation with social psychology. And it was at that time that I encountered the work of Dr. Jonathan Haidt and moral foundations theory. And we uh, had a, a, an advisory group of scholars that helped us do our own psychological research. And my, my theory at the time, which didn't pan out, was that disgust was what was going on, that Christians were disgusted by the possibility of, uh, of being exposed to heresy, And what we discovered in our research was that Christian nationalism was actually a greater predictor than disgust was. Um, But along the course of that research in moral foundations theory and disgust and so on, I came across your work uh, in harm-based morality, and I've been fascinated by it. Um, We did a a book at the end of our research looking at the emotions of multi-faith engagement, and in my chapter... Not only did I discuss moral foundations theory and discussed as a possibility, I also mentioned your work as well. So here, all of that is background. Uh, here we are today. I'd like to begin with a little personal note. How did you personally and professionally get interested in the kind of research that you're doing now? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Uh, and so 
professionally, I kind of got here by having an advisor who was interested in the problem of other minds. So that's a longstanding philosophical issue, right? Like, you know, you have a mind, you know, you can feel emotions and feel pain, but you don't know anyone else can have experiences, right? It's like Descartes' kind of original insight, right? Like he knows he's, he's around because, you know, I think therefore I am, right? He's a mind, but there's this kind of like ultimate a gap between our mind and those of others. And we're, we're left to guess other people's experience, right? If your spouse says, I love you how, do you, how do you know if they mean it, right? That time right. or ever for that matter, right? And so it's a, it's a really deep uh, problem. And, and it also relates actually to a lot of theological things. So I uh, proposed one grant on discernment, right? The process of discernment as people try to understand God's voice. And it's always filtered through our own psychology, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's ultimately a question of like understanding the, the mind of God. And so I've got a, a, actually a number of things on kind of how people understand, uh, understand the mind of God. Um, but then in terms of my work on bridging divides, uh, I'd say personally, um, I have, so I grew up in Canada, uh, the kind of Texas of Canada, Alberta, some kind of like a, you know, grew up a little more conservative for, for Canada, but Canada is a little more progressive for America. And I've got a, a lot of, of family. My stepmother's family is from Nebraska and they're all uh, quite conservative evangelicals, uh, uh, all of them. And so it was interesting as a kid, we had so, you know, I had so much in common with them in terms of, we like swimming in the pond. We like riding horses around their farm, right? Playing in the barn, right? Like as a kid, everything in common. And then as I grew older and I, you know, hung out more with academics and they hung out more with uh, other evangelical Christians. It was clear that we kind of disagreed on a lot of, a lot of issues, uh, politically speaking. And I wanted to know, but I always respected them, right? I always respected them. We always had fairly reasonable conversations, um, but, but I understood that, that that is not the norm uh, in, in America um, and, and not even the norm, you know, in, in even my small bubbles uh, and their bubbles as well. And so I wanted to understand kind of how to kind of better bridge those conversations, not only for, you know, understanding America at large and gridlock Congress, but also for having just better conversations <laughs> with family members, you know, uh, better Thanksgiving uh, dinners. So um, that's kind of my, my personal, um, my personal uh, connection. And that kind of one of my, my forays, maybe this links up to the kind of things we'll be talking about into harm-based morality and, um, and, and politics and religion was this op-ed I published in the New York Times in 2015. And it was about um, evangelical reactions to the, the likely passage of gay marriage. And at the time, kind of mirroring your uh, approach, right, your initial approach on moral foundations theory, people, academics, uh, e even kind of uh, more religious folks were like, look, the reason that Christians are, uh, many Christians are against the passage of gay marriage is because just of scripture or because of disgust. Um, and, and my research suggests, well, even in things that seem quote harmless or victimless, there's still a kind of powerful presence of harm in our minds. And that kind of motivates our moral judgment. And so we ran a bunch of studies that found that even in, in ostensibly harmless actions, for instance, entertaining heresy, if you're a Christian, right? That people still, see harm in those acts, right? See potential victims, see the suffering of children, see the, the you know, degrading of society in some ways. And so we published this op-ed in the Times saying that, look, the, 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 there's a kind of constant presence of victimhood in this opposition to, to gay marriage, 
right? Perceiving like children as being harmed, families as, as unraveling. And, you know, whether you agree with that or not, the point is that these perceptions uh, on behalf of evangelicals are legitimately held and authentically believed. Um, and so we, you know, we got a lot of great emails from evangelicals about this, right? Some pastor uh, down south said, you know, thank you for recognizing my opinions and my perspective. And I'm not just, you know, just inventing this just to piss off liberals and on the right, other hand. Right. And, and the liberals, you know, for their part, were mostly like, I don't believe it, right? But this, I mean, this is the entire, right? It's hard to, to speak to divides, right? right. Um, but the point was that, well, you should believe it, right? And just because you don't see the harm, uh, doesn't mean that other people don't. And, and what we argued is really there's a connection between seeing something as immoral and seeing it as harmful. And if you see it as immoral, then you see it as harmful and vice versa. And if you don't, then you don't. But, but the important point is like you have to recognize those other perceptions. Yeah, I appreciate all that, Becker. And just a little quick follow-up on that. Um, I notice in our conversation, you're wearing glasses. I have contact lenses on. You talked about trying to identify filters. And I would think that our filters would be self-evident but we also call them blind spots. Um, are, are, are basically a big part of your work trying to help people identify their, their own blind spots as well as what they don't see in the other in terms of your research? Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of putting it, right? Our minds are full of biases, right? We function in the world in a way to kind of help us get through easily and quickly um, and not necessarily to find the kind of ultimate truth in others, especially, right, to recognize the, the value in other people's viewpoints. And so we're, we're blinded in many ways about, about other people and their perspectives. And so my work does try to reveal, one, the kind of truth that other people have that you might not realize and ways to appreciate that uh, more fully. Now, your work is in, uh, we've been talking about harm-based morality. For those who've never heard of that concept, can you define it and unpack it for us? Sure. It's, it's a pretty uh, simple idea, which is that when our moral mind makes judgments, those judgments are ultimately grounded in harm. And so um, give you an obvious example. So if you see someone uh, abusing their kid, right, or kicking their dog, we think that those actions are harmful and also immoral, right? They're immoral because we see them as harmful. And that's uncontroversial with a, a lot of things right? 95% of the laws in America are, are built to guard against harm, theft, assault, abuse, whatever, right? Fraud, those are all that kind of harm. But the, the idea of harm-based morality is that that kind of like harm-based core of morality, things that we all typically believe are immoral and harmful, uh, that extends more broadly. And that all of our kind of moral judgments are ultimately grounded in harm. And of course, there are other things that matter as well, right? Questions of you can say theology or family, right? Other values, but even those other values are ultimately kind of further grounded in harm, right? So it, it, if scripture says to do something or don't do something, right? It, it's often understood that's not just like God saying that by fiat, right? But instead God saying that to protect us from harm or guide us to in, in, a, in a more kind of beneficial path, right? And so uh, all those things ultimately come together in harm. And the nice thing about it is if we all have it, we can all ultimately make sense of moral differences because right, we all ultimately have the same kind of common currency, right? You travel to Greece, you need to buy something, right? You can exchange your money, right? We all have an exchange rate. And so the idea is that harm is the kind of like common currency of morality. No matter what values you hold, you can kind of exchange those values uh, uh, through harm. And uh, 
preparing for our conversation, I worked my way through uh, various journal articles that you've written over the years and pulled out some, some questions. And coming out of what you just said, it would seem to me that one of the challenges that we face in this is defining the term harm. Uh, you refer to it uh, that it's best understood as spanning an intuitively perceived continuum. How does that definition and that continuum play into harm-based morality? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so th I think that the simplest way of understanding harm is that it's it's really a pairing of, of, of two people. So it's not it's not stubbing your toe, it's not right hitting your head when you get up in the night. Although that you know it's harmful, but really it's this kind of interpersonal harm. So one person harming another, a victimizer and a victim, is kind of like the the psychological model we have in our minds. Uh, that's what harm is for morality, um, and. The intuitive part is that it's not something we generally have to think about really hard, right? You don't have to look at someone kicking their dog and think, oh, like, I wonder if there's a victim here. And I wonder if there's a victimizer, right? You just see the dog yelping and, and, and you know, and a man like gritting his teeth as he's kicking. And you just think that's harmful and, and that's immoral. So the, the intuitive part's important because a lot of research in morality has revealed that our moral judgments are really kind of like, um, almost emotional, right? They, they, they are, are made quickly and without a lot of consideration. Um, and so our perceptions of harm are that way as well, the kind of mere morality. And then the, the continuum part, I think, is also important. And, you know, this gets into kind of like academic debates. I don't know how much we want to get into, right? But there, there's this big argument in, in the field, and it's gone on for, for a long time, about the existence of harmless wrongs. Right. And so if there are things that are wrong that people think are harmless, like breaking promises to the dead, for instance, right, people think that that's often wrong, but they say, well, it's, it's harmless. And so if there are things that are immoral that don't involve harm, then, logically speaking, it must be the case that harm can't be the basis for all of morality. Right, because we have a harmless wrong and so there must be something else. Um, and so to to the kind of issue of harmless wrongs, my response is, well, harmless to whom, right? Because if harm is kind of in the, in the eyes of the beholder, then if someone sees it as harmful, then, then it is harmful to them, right? So uh, back to gay marriage, right? So if, if, you're, um, if you're an evangelical and you see gay marriage as harmful, then, then it is harmful to you, right? And, and that's what I mean by harm is perceived. And as far as the in intuitive continuum goes, to say that something's harmless but immoral kind of cuts the, the rich kind of continuum, right, diversity of harm in, in two, right? The harms and the not harms, the wrongs and the not wrongs. Um, but in fact, like, it, it, it proceeds along a gradient, right? So genocide is a wrong, but so is, I don't know, double parking. So is going 20 over the speed limit. Is it as bad as genocide? I don't think so, right? There's clearly a difference there, but it, it doesn't mean that one is not wrong and one is wrong, right? And so when we talk about the, the harmfulness of breaking promises to the dead, it's certainly not as harmful as, as kicking a dog or lying, right, to your spouse or, you know, betrayal. But I think you, you can say it, it is harmful in the fact of what if, what if everyone lied, right? Or what, what does that mean for like, people who are dying, right? It harms them as they're hoping that their dreams are carried forward and other people, right, 
don't follow those dreams, right? So you can kind of see it as harmful in a sense, intuitively even, even if it's not as harmful as something like murder. So I think those are the important parts in, in, in my work that I've tried to highlight as we kind of engage in these academic debates. So what you're describing here, this is a, a, a human psychological thing, not just a conservative versus liberal. I, sometimes I run into that when I start describing the relevance of some of this to uh, interreligious conflict. Um, it's, it's not, a, we all have this harm-based morality. We're just disagreeing, conservative, liberal, for example, over what is harmful. And there's no understanding or recognition that what the other, on the other side of the aisle, thinks is harmful is laughed off as ridiculous on the other side. And because it's not taken seriously, the other many times is just considered evil uh, rather than having a, a, a disagreement over what's harmful for the individual in society. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the kind of what draws me to this idea of a harm-based morality is one, I, I think it's true, right? I've done lots of studies where, uh, where the results suggest that we kind of have this common currency. But two, I think, it, I think it's useful. Um, and I think it has a potential to help bridge divides. And so you, you mentioned kind of moral foundations theory and, and that's you know, a quite popular theory in, in my field as well. Right, so the idea that there's a, a number of distinct moral foundations and liberals have a couple and conservatives have more and liberals will never understand those foundations, right? And so the, I think the, the issue pragmatically with that theory is it means that there is an unbridgeable moral divide in the sense that like, you know, if you don't have that, that foundation, you'll never understand conservatives, right? Like liberals never understand what it's like to respect authority. And, and one, I don't think that's true. I have two, two kids and you can bet I get plenty pissed when I tell them to do something and they don't do something, right? Um, and, and loyalty, uh, right? And, 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 you know, if you wanna talk about purity, if you, if you know someone who cares about like uh, getting the freshest juices into their body after a yoga cleanse, it's probably not an evangelical conservative, it's a liberal. Um, but I, I think the point that you made is very apt in that, we all have our kind of conceptions of harm, even if we all, right? And I, I guess I want to back up and say, look, we agree on 95% of harms already, right? We, we agree on the importance of protecting our kids. We agree on not wanting to like drink poisoned water, on having cars that don't kill us, on, right? Like we, there is so much agreement in our lives about morality. And I think we often don't discuss it, but I think we should start there, right? We all think that it's bad to abuse kids, you know, the, to embezzle from our companies, to lie to our spouse, whatever. So we, we agree on those things. But when we disagree, I think we often, as you say, neglect the legitimate assumptions of harm that people make about those things. And so if you're an evangelical, you probably believe in something like an immortal soul, right? And, and the existence of an afterlife. And for secular atheists, right? If you don't believe in a soul, then you can see many many kind of things that uh, that an evangelical might do is kind of as being strange or ridiculous, right? Like worrying about your immortal salvation. But like, it, if you believe in a soul and and you think that that soul persists for an eternity, you know, Pascal's wager, then it, it makes sense to to safeguard that soul and those of your children's forever, right? So I think once you recognize that all morality is based in harm and people make different assumptions about that harm. Then, then you're not as much arguing about who's evil, but about the assumptions that people are making about what is or isn't harmful. And, and then if, if we're arguing about these kind of assumptions, then 
it's more of an opportunity to learn and, and discuss our kind of, you know, where we're coming from and not saying that like, well, you're evil and I'm not. And so my hope is that, again, pragmatically, that understanding this common currency will help us better bridge divides. Could you say a little bit about the relationship between harm-based morality and moral foundations theory? Are, are you saying that uh, they have a relationship or that moral foundation theory is an inappropriate way to understand the psychology and harm-based is kind of a, a wholesale alternative. For those who are more familiar, perhaps, with Jonathan Haidt and his colleagues and their assertions and their body of work, what's the relationship there? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And Haidt, have, Haidt and I have had a um, number of debates about, about this, both in print and in person. Um, and so... I think there are maybe two ways of thinking about it. If you think about moral foundations as just an interesting description of some values uh, and some very specifically understood values that liberals and conservatives might disagree on, then I think they are compatible theories because my theory is about the kind of the, the underlying basis of the moral mind, right? Kind of cognition. And, and moral foundation theory is about kind of describing the world. Um, but, you know, and some kind of variability, some differences that might exist. But, but even then, I think that some of those foundations are not, are not measured well. So, for instance, if you are going to measure loyalty with um, questions about respecting what your pastor says, caring about your particular sports team, or um, worrying about kind of um, you know what someone does with the American flag, the, those are those are about loyalty, absolutely. But they're they're kind of designed in a way to really tack more conservative concerns about loyalty, right? One could imagine designing those questions to be about um, loyalty to union leaders or to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. or right? A, a number of ways that you could kind of make it a little more left-leaning. And then you would come out way saying, well, it's actually uh, liberals that care more about, about loyalty. You could say the same thing about authority, right? So that there's ways in which the kind of framing of those foundations is, is skewed in a way that I think over uh, misrepresents kind of the divide between liberals and conservatives. But, but I think the idea of a general harm-based morality is consistent with the idea of kind of like looking at various ways that liberals and conservatives might disagree. If you think of moral foundations as like cognitive foundations, as, as John's written, switches in the brain, right? Kind of these modules, then I think that, that I firmly disagree that, that there are those things in the mind. So there's, there's, no, there's no good evidence that there are foundations as kind of John, uh, argues in his more uh, essentialist terms, we could say, right? That there are these like things in the mind and like if they're switched on, then you care about purity. And if they're switched off, then you don't. And culture switches them on and off. We don't have those kind of like separate circuits or separate little modules in our mind. Instead, we kind of have these like distributed kind of general psychological models of the world. And those models are based on harm. And so we have lots of other work that shows that, you know, if you think that loyalty is an important moral value, you link it to harm. And harm is the kind of active ingredient that turns a value, and there's lots of values, punctuality, industriousness, right, respect, whatever. I could name a hundred values. We could spend the whole thing this hour naming values. But if you moralize those values, it's because you link them to harm. 
Okay, that's helpful. As I continue to, to rethink this, I started with height and always willing to, to rethink my understanding of things. I mentioned when we started um, some work that I had done with a grant, some uh, research in psychology that began with the idea that purity was of great concern to uh, conservative Christians. I certainly still think that is the case. And with that, oftentimes I see anger and fear, uh, particularly for conservative Christians in relation to particular religious groups more than others, Muslims, uh, atheists, uh, if you look at the, the, the Pew Feelings Thermometer and about how evangelicals feel about other religious groups, those tend to relate uh, to come down on the bottom of the scale. How does uh, harm-based morality relate to those kinds of concerns for, for purity? Yeah, it's a good question. Purity is a kind of, it's a funny foundation. It's a funny concept. We actually have a, a, a big paper under review right now Kind of suggesting that the the concept of purity is kind of ill-defined it's a it's a grab bag of, of things that um you can just throw in whatever doesn't seem to fit in other things so sometimes purity is defined as as very um specifically about let's say the kind of like soul right you're like tarnishing the soul if you if you sign a piece of paper to sell your soul that's impure but it's sometimes also about about sex right having underage sex um, that's seen as impure. Sometimes it's about just immorality, right? The impurity of sin, right? Sin in itself uh, renders someone impure, but sin is just a synonym for immorality, right? And so if, if you understand purity as just being something that's immoral, well, then it's not about purity. It's just about immorality, right? And so it's this, it's this weird chimeric shifting construct. Um, and, and what we find in our studies is when we assess kind of worries about impurity, they are correlated about 0.9, which is basically perfect, right, for, for a, a study um, with concerns about harm. So why are you concerned about rendering your soul impure? Well, are, does it make you go to hell? Does it make you become a terrible person, right? Does it turn you into someone you don't wanna be? Does it harm your children? Does it harm your community? Uh, and I think the same with, with you know, um, prejudice against atheists or Muslims or even other, you know, other sects of Christianity, right? So Protestants versus Catholics for a long time, right? It's like, well, that religion is not only wrong, but think of all the terrible things it leads to, right? If you're a Protestant, like you're giving up your authority to a priest. We all know the abuses of the Catholic church. And so, right, won't that cause all sorts of, uh, of harms? And so I think, um, and I mentioned the, the study at the beginning where I had, um, you know, evangelical folks, Think about impure things, right? Harmless things. So we asked, these are college students, and, and we asked, we sat them in the lab and we said, I want you to think about a, a series of ideas, and um, I want you to rate your disgust on how, you know, how disgusting it feels to think of these ideas, and also how harmful you think it is uh, to, to have these ideas. And then finally, how immoral it is to think of these ideas. So we have harm, disgust, and immorality. And so the ideas were things like, Jesus is not God right? God is not real. Uh, things like that, right? Uh, heretical ideas. And it turns out that they did feel disgusted entertaining those ideas. They did think that those ideas were harmful, and they did think that those things were immoral. But the key is that disgust led to perceptions of immorality, or sorry, disgust led to perceptions of harm, which led to perceptions of immorality. So unpacking that, it means disgust is just a cue to harm, and harm is what drives immorality. And if you think about it, 
it has to be the case that, um, that <laughs> it has to be the case, there's the pets that we mentioned, it has to be the case that the disgust on its own can't be immoral, right? Because look, I'm a, I'm a parent uh, and my, my children recently got out of diapers and there were so many days that I was covered in poop, right? My, my daughter came home with like a stomach bug. My, this is my five-year-old, she's a stomach bug. And, and she's like, oh, dad, I don't feel well. <laughs> oh my God, right? So I like lift her off the couch, like run into the bathroom, her in her arms. And at the same time, she threw up on me and had diarrhea and it came out the back of her pants. It, it, was, it was disgusting. It was, it was on me, it was on the floor. And, and did I think it was immoral? even though I was horribly disgusted and, and I, you know, my sense of impurity was surely <laughs> triggered, but I, no, I didn't think she was immoral, right? I, I felt concern, compassion. I, I wanted to help her. Um, and so disgust on its own is not enough to make someone think that something's immoral. You have to have that additional concern about harmful, right? It's disgusting and it's gonna cause damage to something I care about. Um, and so that's kind of my, my thoughts about disgust. So was that study that you mentioned, was that the one where you looked at the harm of sacrilegious ideas? Is that the one you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. I, just so the, the audience can uh, understand this a little bit better, evangelicals and other conservative Christians can understand themselves. And those in other religious traditions can maybe understand something that's going on in the psychology of conservative Christians. You did discover some confirmation that uh, conservative Christians do feel like they are being harmed. Is it just in the mention of, the thinking of, presence of? How, how far can we take that concern for harm in relation to that? Yeah, it's a good question. And again, going back to the, the idea that harms is kind of continuum. So right, all harms are not, are not equal. Surely entertaining the idea that Jesus is not God is not as harmful as cutting off someone's fingers, uh, for instance, right? <laughs> But, but there, you know, there is some kind of felt harm. And, and I think that, you know, folks reported that, well, is, is it going to like stay inside me, right? And, and like kind of, uh, you know, like uh, echo in my mind and give me doubts, undermine my faith. And if my faith is my key to kind of like my moral sense and the fact that I do good deeds instead of bad, will that make me less likely to do bad things? And so it doesn't take that many steps to understand how these you know, sacrilegious thoughts that people are asked to entertain, um, and not spontaneously, right? And experimenters like think these terrible thoughts, um, and, and that's a little more kind of um, forced, even though it's not really forced, right? Than, than than if you just idly came across these while reading or something. But I, I think there is truth in the idea that people feel kind of harmed, kind of entertaining these, right? Or you know, the idea of not being able to raise your kids in your religious tradition, right? Like that seems harmful too, right? Because Again, if you link your religion to morality, uh, it, it, it connects. Um, and, and you link morality to not doing subsequent harm, right? So having values that support your family and, and make America better and so forth. Uh, just so that we can kind of understand the dynamics that's going on here and maybe rehumanize each other in the process. I think many times when we disagree with others over politics and religion, uh, the way it's understood by the person on the other side, well, that person's just, they're just prejudiced, they're just bigoted. And there may indeed be prejudice and bigotry going on, but is it correct that there's a, a broader dynamic? The human mind has this us versus them dynamic. We have this implicit bias against outgroup members. And we, when we perceive harm, 
uh, in part, uh, a prejudice may be a self-defense mechanism. Maybe prejudice itself can be understood on a continuum uh, as well. Are, are these kinds of dynamics in, in play? I'm just trying to help us. We tend to look at the black and white. I disagree with that person. They don't like me. Therefore, they're evil and bigoted. But there's other things going on. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and kind of no matter who you are or what your beliefs are, we have a powerful urge to clump the world into us and them, as you say, right? And us means we are true, we are good, um, we know what's going on, right? And them is the opposite, right? They, they don't know what's going on, they're not smart, they're not wise, they're immoral. Uh, and, and so, and there's all sorts of processes that, right? Be, those things, those beliefs in us and them serve multiple functions. So one, uh, it makes you feel good about yourself, right? And we all have a need to feel good about ourselves, like implicit self-esteem. If your thought was like, our group kind of sucks, right? And their group is great. Like, that's not a great way to go through life, right? It's like, it, it's hard for humans to not to feel good about themselves and their groups. Uh, and so we feel good about our groups because we want to feel good about ourselves. And we feel bad about others uh, who aren't in our group because we also want to feel good about ourselves. Um, and... And right, if you constantly were like, wow, like whatever they're doing, that's right. Like that's a good way of doing it. Then, then it means that you should change your group, right? And it turns out that's really hard and you built all this social capital up in, to belong in your group. And so uh, it's really hard to break out of your group, right? So maybe even if you're evangelical, right? You can, there's other sects where maybe you don't, don't believe in what they're doing, right? And you say, maybe they're brainwashed, right? Maybe they uh they don't believe correctly because right like their parents just think that or their pastor is like forcing down this interpretation of scripture instead of this other one right you can you can cut the line as fine as you even in your own congregation right well right. this person thinks this that's crazy right if if you're an atheist you think it's all crazy right that's fine. That's fine. but but if you're in the church right like the fact that you could like um yeah have schisms over like small disagreements in doctrine that seem really big you know if you focus on them um and, and so i i think it's a it's a universal human urge and it, and it happens at every scale of humankind and so the 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 trick and i think that maybe the problem is that when there's big disagreements we often focus on the big disagreements. So Christians versus Muslims, instead of the fact that the guy who sits in the pew next to me, right? Like I, I think misread this part of scripture. Um, and so in, in some sense, we're actually, we're trying to test this. We're seeing if like focusing on local disagreements to the fact that disagreement is something human might make you be more amenable to the fact that people disagree about some bigger things, right? We always disagree. Um, that's just how it is, but, but surely we agree at all levels. So even, Right, atheists believe that you should raise good kids, and Muslims believe in God. Right, um, so it, you got to pick the right scale. Right, uh, uh, to kind of pick up on that, I like to try and end on a positive note. What what we've been talking about is identifying a lot of the what and the why, um, but then that raises questions of how. How do we take these the, the data from this kind of uh, work that you're doing and how do we apply it to try and move past our polarization? Have you done any work in that area? Would you have any suggestions? Once we, once we recognize the psychological dynamics that are going on, how can we 
in some sense, recognize that the other has concerns for harm that we may not necessarily share. And rather than just saying, you know what, you just need to drop it. How can we recognize the concern without necessarily agreeing with it or baptizing it in Christian terms and, and working through the differences for the betterment of the, of the society we live in? Yeah, it's a great question. We have uh, a couple a couple of projects on this. One of them is about it's about a kind of general misconception we have about bridging divides. So in this project, we asked Americans, right, including uh, evangelicals, conservatives, kind of a representative sample, what would make you respect someone on the other side of the gun debate, let's say? Uh, and they say, I want the facts. Give me the facts, right? Like we'll just have some base facts. And then from those kind of objective truths, we will construct some common grounds and then come to some kind of understanding, if not agreement. And then if you give people facts, uh, turns out it does not work. In fact, it sometimes makes things worse, right? Because you're like, those aren't real facts. You can make up your own facts. That's fake news, right? <laughs> and then right, and then you're just like, you're totally derailed as you're arguing about the facts. It turns out that the key to, uh, to bridging divides, increasing respect, is about emphasizing personal experiences, particularly those about harm. And that is because we all understand the importance of avoiding harm, and we all understand that other people are motivated to avoid harm. And so if I have a view that, that you think is not, is not rational because of your assumptions, right? Let's say I'm pro-gun control, you're pro-gun, right? And you say, why, why don't you want a gun? Don't you want to protect your family, right? That's dumb. And I say, why would you want a gun? Gun, like, do you want your kids to shoot themselves when they find it, right? And, and, and so starting that, you know, that conversation there is not going to end well. But it turns out that if, if, if we first share stories about how we've been impacted, perhaps by, by guns or any issue, then it provides a kind of common ground for us to say, well, the other side's rational, they, uh, and they care about harm. And so we have a, a bunch of studies, this paper has been downloaded about 100,000 times now, um, that, that show that if you just kick off something with like, look, the reason that I believe the way I do on guns is because, you know, uh, I had a friend who got shot in a, in a school shooting and, and that just really stuck with me. Or if you say, look, the reason that I'm pro-gun is because someone broke in, into my house when I was little and, and my mom defended herself uh, with a gun. And it's just really important to me because I think it helps protect my family. All of a sudden now, like you're human, I'm human. We understand the harm that, that, that we're kind of perceiving and that provides a kind of kind of a stepping stone. And there's actually lots of organizations that kind of swap stories or provide those kind of understandings of harm. Um, the, and the, relatedly, I think it's important to kind of uh, find balance. And even just if you're just recognizing that the other side just legitimately perceives harm, even if you don't agree, right? And say, I have a hard time kind of understanding how you might think that, right? Because these are my assumptions. But, but if I kind of believe the things that you believed, then, then that, that makes sense, right? And so I understand that you're being rational. And so I guess to kind of like bring it back, part of the, the issue is you think the other side is irrational, right? They're not smart for believing what they believe. But, but people are, are rational in their kind of sets of beliefs. Right, like maybe you think it's irrational not to believe in God because of the majesty and glory of the natural world, whatever. Right? Maybe Nathan thinks it's irrational to believe in God because, right, he never comes when you call him, right, to visit. 
And so, right, th there are these like divides and kind of like what we think is like broadly rational. But once you think about like, look, people have different beliefs, people do act rationally within those sets of beliefs and, and you have to understand that. Fantastic. Now, those studies that you mentioned, are those available on the website for Deepest Beliefs Lab and the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding or are they elsewhere? They, yeah, they're on the Deepest Beliefs Lab. Uh, the, the, yeah, I don't know if the paper is kind of like really salient. Um, I'm happy to give you the web address. It's open access. So it's downloadable for anybody on the journal website as well. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I will follow up with you afterwards. And we'll, again, we'll make the uh, links to everything available in the program notes. Um, I tried to ask questions that would cover uh, the, the broad bases in a short period of time. Is there anything that I miss that you would like to, to say to get out? Um, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. We, yeah, we, we have. probably talked for hours, yeah. <laughs> We could. Well, great. I, I hopefully uh, I find this fascinating. Uh, I continue to poke around your websites and, and look at your papers. In fact, I just got an email this morning about some of your work with colleagues in intellectual humility, which is another area where I have been doing some research uh, and applied for another grant. So I may be in touch with you about that as well. But I just want to thank you for taking the time for the work that you do and helping the audience understand the significance of harm based morality. Great. Thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. My pleasure.